primary care knowledge boost, urticaria. Welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we're talking again to Dr. Rachel Hilton and we're going to be finding out all about urticaria. Yeah, um, so last time she talked to us about generalised itch without a rash. Today we're talking about um, what urticaria is, how to think about it in terms of causes and triggers, looking at history and examination, and then appropriate investigations we can be doing in primary care, if any. She also talks to us about um, management of urticaria. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, um, again, good strategies that we can use in in primary care um, without needing to refer on. So welcome back. Um, We're delighted to be speaking again to Dr. Rachel Hilton today um, about dermatology topics. Um, Would you mind just introducing yourself again, Rachel, for people who didn't listen the first time? Hello, of course. I'm Rachel Hilton. I'm a GP with special interest in dermatology, working for Wrightington Wigan and Lee Trust. I work both in the secondary care dermatology unit at Lee Infirmary and also in a community clinic based in Wigan. I no longer work as a GP, but I have got 23 years past experience in primary care as a GP. So that's very much my my background. Um, So today's topic is um, urticaria. Um, So shall we get stuck in and maybe start by defining what urticaria is? Okay, urticaria is a very common, itchy, non-scarring, intermittent rash caused by the release of histamine from mast cells, which are cells that we all have sitting in the dermis of the skin, the inner layer of the skin. Histamine itself, once released, causes a cascade of other inflammatory mediators. And the rash itself consists of wheels, which are specifically lesions caused by dermal edema surrounded by an erythematous or red flare on the skin. And individual urticarial lesions last less than 24 hours. And this can be quite important when it comes to differentiating urticaria from some of the other urticarial dermatoses or skin skin problems. Mm. Patients often describe the rashes looking like a nettle rash or hives. So the release of histamine from the mast cells, which is known as mast cell degranulation, can be caused by different mechanisms. It can be caused by a non-allergic mechanism, which is in fact far more common than an IgE-mediated allergic mechanism. So only a minority of urticarial rashes are actually the result of an allergic reaction. Mm. Examples of IgE-mediated allergic urticaria would include urticaria due to contact with latex or some animals, for example. Okay, Okay. yeah. So when we were reading about the topic in preparation for today, um, we were looking at the differences between acute and chronic urticaria. Um, Do you mind just walking us through that, so the definitions and the differences between them? Well, acute urticaria is urticaria that has lasted so far for less than six weeks, chronic for more than six weeks. So it's it's rather arbitrary (laughs) in that sense. And of course, it's not possible if you're seeing a patient who has had urticaria for four weeks to know whether they will go on to have chronic urticaria or not. And there is, in fact, a third classification of episodic urticaria. In other words, recurrent acute episodes Okay, so each episode is less than six weeks, but it's recurring. Right. Yes, that will be the case. Um, Is it important to differentiate between them, do you think? We tend to manage a patient with acute urticaria with antihistamines alone in the first instance, Mm -hmm. but we're still going to move on to adding in additional medication if their urticaria persists. Okay. 
Um, and I guess we've kind of covered it with the acute relapsing because I was going to ask with chronic urticaria, does it come and go? Or when someone's got chronic urticaria, do they have chronic urticaria forever? Chronic urticaria does not necessarily last forever, although it can do for some people. Mm. So we're, we're very, we very much give an open-ended prognosis. We never pr- promise that the urticaria will have gone by a specific time, for example. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and when we think about urticaria, um, how, how can we be certain that that's what it is that we're looking at? I know you've mentioned some of the quite specific features um, there of it, um, but have you got anything that you would look for specifically in a history? In the history, the, the classical factor is that it's the rash that comes and goes. So the typical scenario is the patient has rung up for an urgent appointment because they were covered in the rash, but by the time they get to see you in surgery, the skin is completely clear and there's mm. nothing to see. And there's really only urticaria that's going to present like that. Yeah. When you're actually looking at the patient, if the patient has some rash at the time, because urticaria is caused by the release of histamine in the dermis, but the epidermis is unaffected, you will find that there is no scale, there is no flaking, there is no roughness of the epidermis, but the epidermis is simply bumpy. It's been raised up by the release of histamine underneath in the dermis. It's rather like, a wheel is rather like the effect when you inject local anaesthetic into the dermis and you you leave behind a bleb of anaesthetic that raises up the epidermis there. So, the, the other conditions that can cause the skin to itch, for example, eczema, fungal skin infections, psoriasis, these all affect the epidermis. So you're going to get roughness, scaling, cracks. There'll be a change in the, in the surface texture of the skin. Mm, true. The other thing that's very specific for urticaria is that quite often trauma to the skin, for example, scratching, can result in a linear wheel. Mm. So a, um, a, a line caused by dermal edema Mm -hmm. so you can ask the patient have you noticed that when you scratched you get a raised itchy line appearing on your skin they may well they may well have noticed that or you can actually try and elicit dermographism yourself by using for example uh, your pen top and first of all demonstrating this on your own arm and sort of moving it down in a linear fashion on your arm because you being the control, you will just develop a flat pink line at the site. Yeah. You then do this on the patient's arm, and within minutes, if dermographism is present, you'll see that a linear wheel has developed and the patient starts scratching at their arm furiously because it's become very, very itchy all of a sudden. Okay. Sounds like a slightly unpleasant test for them, but useful to diff- to get the diagnosis. It's, it's certainly, it certainly gives you a very useful clinical sign, yeah. 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 And does would that be present in everybody with um, urticaria? It isn't. It isn't. So it, I, I wouldn't drop the diagnosis of urticaria if I couldn't elicit dermographism. Yeah. But there are times when it when it when it feels like a useful thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. Um, can you talk us through the common and important differentials for both um, acute and chronic urticaria? I think the most common differential for acute urticaria is the crop of insect bites. But the main difference here is that insect bites will not clear within 24 hours as urticaria wheels will. Um, as far as chronic urticaria, this is where it becomes quite helpful to decide whether individual wheels are lasting for more than 24 hours or not. Because, of course, in chronic urticaria, individual wheels clear within 24 hours. Yeah. And you can establish this by drawing a ring around one or two wheels and timing how long those individual wheels take to clear. Yeah. 
If you find that wheels are lasting more than 24 hours, this raises the possibility of one of several urticarial dermatoses, such as urticarial vasculitis or bullous pemphigoid. Mm. And so in those situations, a biopsy may be necessary to sort out the uh, precise process that's going on. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I thought to have drawn around them, but yeah. You need to do that because if you ask the patient how long does your rash last, they, of course, are taking account of all areas of the body. Yeah, of course. Whereas drawing that circle around individual wheels, um, you can get a much more precise idea. Yeah, that's really nice, actually. Um, And what are the common causes and triggers for urticaria? Well, acute urticaria, so urticaria that, that resolves within six weeks, particularly in children, is most often caused by a viral infection. Yeah. Now, the virus has usually been and gone by then, so the child is completely well. <laughs> but th- that is very much the, the most common cause that has been identified. Yeah. Some foods can cause urticaria, not necessarily because of an allergic reaction, by a non-allergic mechanism, yeah. and some medication can too. Chronic urticaria can be triggered by all the same factors as acute urticaria. When it comes to chronic urticaria, you need to start to consider the possibility of chronic infections. For example, helicobacter infection, dental sepsis, chronic chest infections. There's certainly a piece of research work that's shown that by picking up those patients that are helicobacter positive and treating them accordingly, you can cause chronic urticaria to to resolve, to, to cease to occur. Mm. There are some foods that are implicated for some patients. These are foods that are naturally high in salicylic acid. Yeah. We know, for example, that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs tend to increase the likelihood of mast cell degranulation. Mm-hmm. Now, that can be relevant in both acute urticaria and chronic urticaria. Mm-hmm. You can imagine a patient with a recent viral infection uh, gets a headache, yeah. takes ibuprofen. Mm-hmm. But foods that are naturally high in salicylic acid can cause mast cell degranulation by the same direct chemical mechanism. So it's not an allergy at all. Um, And it's quite often useful to go through these foods with patients to see whether they eat a significant amount of these foods. I remember these foods as often being red. So there are foods such as tomatoes, red peppers, red wine berry fruits, nuts, shellfish, so those are the main ones. Yeah. And really just encouraging the patient not to eat too many of these foods at, at any one time. Interesting. And yeah, with the shellfish particularly, I guess, making sure like it's telling them it's not an allergy, you're not allergic to shellfish, it's, it's, it's a different mechanism. Yeah, very definitely. That, that yeah. If they are prone to getting urticaria, that is not the time to be having a nice tomato salad and red peppers followed off by a bowl of strawberries for example mm-hmm. but that they then may be able to return to eating these things in the future if there's a time when the urticaria has died down right, okay. Ah, okay so it's not necessarily forever yeah interesting in, ter- in terms of thinking about common triggers some patients find that their urticaria is triggered by heat mm-hmm. which may be after for example having a very hot shower or bath or so they've exercised some patients find their urticaria is triggered by cold okay. or by sun exposure or by pressure so there's a whole range of triggers for different patients. Yeah, I guess uh, patients will be pretty good at starting to figure out when is this happening, what am I doing mm. around the time. Certainly once you start to suggest these possible triggers to them, they'll recognise whether they apply uh, in, in their personal case. There's also a group, um, most commonly w- middle-aged women with chronic urticaria, in whom the etiology is autoimmune. 
they've actually developed autoantibodies that are triggering the mast cell degranulation and release of histamine. Mm. Yeah. And these are the people who are probably going to keep their chronic urticaria mm. lifelong, yeah. which is why you need to be very guarded as far as the prognosis goes. Okay. Oh, you mentioned about NSAIDs there as a drug cause. Are there any other big drug causes of, of urticaria? Or is it the same, same as with our previous episode that it's listed as everything in the BNF? <laughs> well, there are certainly many other drugs, particularly antibiotics, I think, yeah. where recent ingestion of an antibiotic may be implicated if the patient then, within, say, two weeks of having that drug, whether they, they, they then develop urticaria. Okay, yeah. But, of course, you also need to consider the possibility that it was the condition that the, that the antibiotic was given for yeah. which has triggered the urticaria. Oh, yeah. So as not to unnecessarily label the patient as being allergic forevermore. Yes, to an antibiotic, that would be quite important. Um, and with the mention there about timeline, what sort of timeline are we talking in terms of a trigger? Um, you mentioned about two weeks there. Would that be reasonable? Yeah, if there, if there is a genuine allergic etiology, you tend to find that the urticaria occurs within an hour mm-hmm. of contact with or ingestion of that substance but with the non-allergic mechanism it's a much looser time scale and so certainly with medication it may be something that you have taken within the last two weeks okay as far as foods go i would say something you have ingested within the last six hours is probably more more realistic yeah that's quite nice to get an idea of time yeah and it's only really sort of dawning on me is it important to differentiate between allergy and urticaria Certainly for some allergic cases of urticaria, I'm thinking here specifically of latex allergy. Mm -hmm. That's obviously something you want to know about Mm -hmm. as soon as possible because of the potential implications if you're allergic to latex. So if you were considering that somebody were allergic to latex, obviously you need to take a very, very detailed history as to whether they have any other reactions to compound to substances or products that contain latex you might want to example ask about when they go to the dentist whether they get swelling around their lips because dentists will often tend to have latex containing gloves on their hands when they're when they're examining your mouth yeah with latex allergy there can also be a cross reaction with certain foods for example kiwi fruit and chestnuts that the body can confuse the two proteins and so if a patient gives a history of reaction of an urticaria rash after ingesting after eating kiwi fruit for example mm. you may want to consider that they may have a latex allergy yeah yeah okay, okay. brilliant thank you for that yeah. i think it's probably an important one to have just put in there really in terms of i think latex allergy is particularly important for us healthcare workers to know yeah. about because we are statistically much more likely to develop it mm. than the general public because we have so much more contact with latex right. we've mm. got so much more exposure to the allergen yeah, yeah that's true um, is there any other um, useful bits to be able to help identify um, where the trigger is apart from timeline? Sometimes you will see a patient in whom the urticaria has a rather odd distribution. So rather than being a widespread rash on the body, it may just be a band that appears across the chest. Mm. And that could be caused by somebody who is getting their urticaria in response to pressure, for example, from a seatbelt. Right. So I think if you're ever faced with a patient that has urticarial wheels in what seems like a rather odd distribution, start to wonder about physical factors such as pressure. Yeah, interesting. Do they they have to kneel down in their job and do they get the urticarial wheels on their knees, for example? Okay. Mm, okay. Um, Are there any investigations that might be relevant in primary care? 
I think there are no investigations that are required in acute oticaria, so that's very short. Acute mm. oticaria that's just only commenced within the previous six weeks. Mm. Yeah. For chronic oticaria, yes. I think we talked about t searching with a good history for evidence of a chronic infection, which may lead to specific investigations. For example, helicobacter antibodies, you may yeah. want to do a chest x-ray. If you're thinking of a chronic chest infection, um, you, you may, it may be appropriate to check for hepatitis C and B status, for example. If you suspect a specific allergic etiology, such as latex, there is reason then to request the specific RAST right. testing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But checking general IgE levels is not helpful at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there ever a uh, reason to do any of the other RAST testing? Or would you just do it if it was latex suspected? I think RAS testing is only beneficial if you've got a very strong suspicion regarding a potential allergen from the history. Because mm. as you know, you you can't do a general test that will then tell you what the patient is allergic to. Yeah, you've got to pick your yes. bites here. <laughs> yeah. So it, it comes back once again to taking a very good, thorough history. Grand. So really only do the specific IgE testing for a certain allergen if you really think that it's in the history. I, I think the, the odd times that I've done RAST to latex tests for patients is if a patient who is employed in the NHS and, say, works in surgical theatres yeah. is giving me a history that suggests possible latex allergy because I think having evidence of that is very important when it comes to their occupational health. Yeah, yeah perfect. Um, and thinking about the acute or chronic urticarial um, rashes, um, which patients do you think require treatment? I think everybody. Everybody <laughs> wants treatment because <laughs> yeah. it is an incredibly itchy rash and nobody... Nobody in my experience has, has declined treatment. Yeah, it is quality of life biggie in, in that respect. Yeah. Even for the short period of time I've had it, it was very nasty. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So what are the possible types of treatment that we can use in primary care? Well, the first line treatment is going to be a non-sedating antihistamine. And what we would do is updose the antihistamine to four times the licensed dose. Mm. So we're going off license, but this is standard practice. Yeah. My favourite is the tyrosine. Okay. So for adults, I would give two tablets twice daily. For those patients um, of whom there are definitely some who find cetirizine sedating, mm -hmm. I would go to fexofenadine, 180 milligrams, two tablets taken twice daily. Okay. And for many patients, that simple step of updosing a non-sedating antihistamine will give them very good, good control of their urticarial rash. But if you find that that is not sufficient, there are several other steps that you can very easily do in primary care you can add in an H2 antagonist, such as cimetidine oh, or yeah. ranitidine, yeah. which will supplement your H1 antag antagonist, your antihistamine. Oh. So adding in cimetidine or ranitidine, usually just as a, as a once daily dose at night, is a useful thing to do. And the third thing that I've often found helpful is to add in Montelukast, 10 milligrams at night. Right, oh, of course. Because yeah. being a mast cell stabiliser, it, yeah. it can be very useful. So simply adding in one additional step at a time so that you can establish exactly what is needed to control that patient's urticaria. Yeah. Mm. And if those three steps have not been helpful, that's when I'll, I'll start to go through the foods that we talked about that are high in salicylic acid yeah. and see if there is scope, see if that patient eats a particular, particularly significant amount of mm. one of those foods, because then I can advise them that just for now, they should avoid that food wherever possible, yeah. but they will be able to go back to eating that food in the future when yeah. they're when they're at a carrier settled. 
interesting. Brilliant. Did you call it upstepping? Updosing. Updosing. Is that um, when you say updosing? Do you mean starting on the higher doses, or do you mean starting? Lower I think. It, I think up? invariably, when a patient comes in to see you in in surgery, they've already tried an antihistamine yeah. in in the standard over the counter licensed dose. So simply switching to another antihistamine at the standard once a day dose is inadequate really yeah so straight away you can updose right. to four times perfect and um, what's your usual um kind of spiel that you tell patients with regards to the off-license usage of of that do you have a kind of thing that you say i tell them it, it, it is higher than the chemist down at the pharmacy will tell them to use yeah. that the license for the drug is for once a day but that we have a lot of lot of experience in dermatology and this is now approved practice it's actually greater manchester medicine management guidance Brilliantly. in yeah. managing a carrier perfect so that'd be reassuring <laughs> reassuring both yeah. for the patient and also the practitioner absolutely exactly yeah. um and you mentioned interestingly there about some people having a, a sedating effect from satirazine mm. and i wasn't aware of that definitely some people handle satirazine differently mm -hmm. and there is a very genuine sedating effect for them be interesting to know so um, when we're thinking about moving through the steps of management, um, how quickly would you expect a response when you start a treatment? Really quite quickly, because I mean, typically yeah. uh, most people are getting their urticarial rash every few days at least. Yeah. And so as soon as you see that the frequency of their rash has been reduced, and also they'll tend to find that their urticarial rash is not as widespread maybe even being prevented completely, they will notice that improvement really quite quickly. Okay, good. Um, and you've mentioned about adding in um, other things like the H2 antagonist antihistamines. Is there any um, rationale for mixing antihistamines, so using two different types? No, there, there isn't really, um, unless it is that the patient warrants a sedative antihistamine at night, in which case you may want to then give them a non-sedating updosed antihistamine during the day okay yeah so so that we do get a good response from our treatment and um, how long do we keep them on the antihistamines there are no hard and fast guidelines for this i think what i always say to patients is to gradually reduce the medication simply by if i had a patient say that was taking both an updosed antihistamine mm -hmm. so say two cetirizine twice daily plus Ranitidine at night plus Montelukast. Mm -hmm. I would probably stop either the Ranitidine or the Montelukast first. Mm, yeah. Then I might get them to reduce their antihistamine one tablet at a time. Perfect. Yeah. And only to make these reductions at a time when they can cope if they get their widespread otocarial rash back again. Mm -hmm. yeah. So not the day before an important event, for example. Mm. Yes. And of course, if they're urticaria worsens then simply to increase their medication to go back a step to reverse the reduction that they've just made but thankfully antihistamines are very very safe for long-term use the only cautions really are with cetirizine with patients with renal failure okay you need, may need to halve the dose there but they're generally speaking a very safe long-term prescription yeah okay lovely Good. what do you think the role is for gps prescribing steroids well you're meaning oral steroids here, I presume, I am, prednisolone. Yeah, sorry, yes. yeah. <laughs> well, prednisolone undoubtedly works. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is that when you're seeing somebody with acute urticaria, you don't know which of those patients are going to go on to have chronic urticaria. Mm -hmm. And as we know, that taking prednisolone over a longer period of time comes with very significant 
uh, risks. Yeah, yeah. I think there is a case for a short course of prednisolone if the patient has got a very important event coming up. For example, a patient with urticaria who's about to get married. Then I think giving a short course of prednisolone to cover the wedding and the honeymoon is entirely appropriate. But prednisolone is not in any way a way to manage urticaria in the longer term. Right. Okay. So short bursts when really, really needed. When needed, yes. Mm. Fine. And if you have chosen that option, what do we do if the symptoms recur after you stop the steroids? What would you recommend? I would very much go back to the management that we've discussed so far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And if we're thinking um, in terms of topical treatments for urticaria, is there anything useful that we can use? Nothing really. (laughs) At at best, um, the application of a very light emollient, which is going to have a soothing action, Mm. may give them a little bit of symptom relief, but... I generally do not prescribe anything topical for urticaria at all. Because it's not really going to do anything. No, because the oral treatment is by far much more effective. Mm-hmm. Okay, grand. And who who would you like to be seeing in, in dermatology clinic? Who should we be referring in to yourselves? Well, as we've mentioned, patients that have urticaria wheels that are lasting longer than 24 hours, that's individual wheels lasting longer than 24 hours, I would refer those because they may well need a skin biopsy. Mm-hmm. Patients with... Chronic urticaria for whom quality of life is significantly affected despite the management steps that we've discussed, then referral is definitely warranted. Mm. There is evidence, good evidence that cyclosporin is effective at symptom control, although it's not really practical for long-term use due mm. to its side effects. Mm. But there is now, for example, a biologic omelizumab, which is uh, recommended by NICE for use in chronic urticaria. Mm. So th- there are some other options that are available in secondary care. But please, please, when referring a patient with urticaria, please do not tell them that you are referring them for allergy testing. Yeah. This is something that we've all come across. But it is very, very unlikely that we will be doing any allergy testing, as we've explained. An allergic etiology is actually only applies to a minority patient with urticaria. Mm. And of course, then we have a very disappointed patient on our hands when we explain that we can't just send off a blood test and tell them what's causing the urticaria. Yeah. So kind of expectation management. Very much so. Yes. Um, but which makes sense from what you've gone through that actually it doesn't make much of a difference and referring into secondary care is going to be more for management options for for how we can improve their quality of life um it's good to know there's a biologic and have you seen good responses i haven't got any experience of patients who have been prescribed this at all but it is on the nice guidance now so it, it it is there for those patients that where it is required in our area there is a, a specialist urticaria clinic down at Salford royal hospital Right. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Is that a referral that GPs can make or would that be from... Well, it would need to be a referral that came through the through your local dermatology department. Yeah. Because with Salford Royal Hospital being a tertiary centre, yeah. the only way that they can manage the demand for their appointments is by patients being referred in from another secondary care dermatology unit. Yeah, that makes and sense. To so still yeah. follow the normal procedure of referring locally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And um, will anyone need to be urgently referred into dermatology with urticaria? Not for urticaria alone. Yeah. If the urticaria is also occurring in association with angioedema, mm-hmm. that is, and there is a history that breathing or swallowing is affected, well, then you in primary care may, t- may need to think of supplying an EpiPen, mm-hmm. two EpiPens, yeah. and, and refer then. 
Um, and of course, if you have systemic release of histamine, you then have anaphylaxis on your hands, and that's going to need admission on the day potentially. Yeah. So they're the only big ones, really, for normal for, for urticaria, barn door urticaria. Yeah, we don't for need urticaria alone, no, uh, uh, an urgent referral is not indicated. Yeah. Grand. Yeah. Um, so now that you mentioned angioedema, it's really important to mention within this topic. Could you give us your biggest learning points in relation to urticaria and angioedema together? Angioedema does often occur with urticaria. Many many patients experience both. And the factors that I would go through then are very much those that we've already discussed in the context of urticaria. But sometimes you'll see patients who are developing angioedema without the development of any wheels on the skin. Yeah. And in these patients, one thing you can very usefully do in primary care is just check to see whether they've been prescribed an ACE inhibitor. Yes, that's right. Because these are known to increase that likelihood of angioedema occurring. And so stopping the ACE inhibitor and prescribing an alternative is something that you can you can do in primary care. Brilliant. Um, and we did touch on it earlier um, about kind of prognosis and, and being a bit guarded when it comes to chronic urticaria and whether or not it's likely to recur. Um, do you have any advice for what we can tell patients about the likelihood of recurrence? The likelihood of urticaria for any of us is in the region of 40%. So I think it's going to be the same figure. Once an episode of urticaria has settled, yeah. the risk is going to be the, there for the future. Same as Potentially, anybody. yes, mm. yes. Is there anything else that you'd like listeners to take away from this topic? I think, yes. What I would say is please think twice and then again before describing urticaria as an allergic rash right, yeah. to your patients. We hear this so much. You need to remember that urticaria is caused far more often by a non-allergic mechanism. But once the word allergy has been used, mm. the patient or the parent will not forget it and often tends to embark upon a fruitless search mm. for the thing that they are allergic to. Yeah. Explain that urticaria often improves spontaneously. Don't promise a particular time scale. And provide an information leaflet such as that supplied by the British Association of Dermatologists, which you can find on the Skin Support website that we've mentioned earlier, yeah. or from the British Association of Dermatologists website, which is bad.org.uk. Lovely. Um, yeah, we'll put links to those in the episode description as well for everybody. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us about these topics. It's been really interesting for both of us. And thank you for your time. Very welcome. Thank you. So thank you so much to Dr. Rachel Hilton. That was a really lovely talk. Yes. Um, what were your learning points, Lisa? Um, I think that it was really important for me to differentiate urticaria as a skin condition rather than being an allergy or an allergic rash. Mm. Um, the fact that it's very rarely caused by an actual true allergy, I think, was incredibly important to take on board. Yeah. So I'm definitely going to have to stop telling patients that it's allergic in nature. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't appreciated that until sort of halfway through her talking yes. when it dawned on me a bit and yeah I really enjoyed listening to her talk about the pathophysiology um mm. so understanding the mechanism that sort of reinforced that message of it's not necessarily allergy yeah I found a really useful article um that backs up Rachel's points um but also it's just it's just interesting in terms of that that whole area and it's called does this patient with urticaria and angioedema have anaphylaxis um which for me just reiterated and clarified points about the differences between them and where allergy fits in i'll put it as a link in the episode description another massive learning point for me was how to manage urticaria properly um so using the 
antihistamines to higher levels and the use of H2 receptor antagonists uh, like ranitidine um, as well as then Montelukast. Although uh, we have to be careful at the moment because of the safety concerns over ranitidine, but definitely using antihistamines to higher levels will be a, a good starting point for me. Um, and also knowing that that is on the GMMG guidance that we can increase the antihistamines to higher than the licensed dose. Yeah, that I is think good. that's reassuring to know. Yeah. Um, I think the other um, big thing that I didn't know going into the um, episode was about the role of H. pylori. Yeah. Um, it wasn't something that I knew to test for in an articarial situation. Um, so that's going to make a big difference to my practice, actually. Yeah, yeah. And to the labs. <laughs> and to the labs, yes, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's it, and we, it is worth yeah. knowing. And, and when yeah. you look on the um, nice DKS, it does mention it on yeah. there as well. Yeah. And um, also, if you'd like to get in touch with us, if you've got any feedback or comments, we really appreciate those that we've been getting so you can get in touch with us on twitter our handle is at pckb podcasts or you can get in touch with us via email and our address is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com and as ever our survey which is as a link in the episode description is our favorite way of getting in touch as well yeah we do love um hearing all of your comments and we are taking things on board so um please do get in touch with us yeah that's it for today till next time on primary care knowledge boost Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Wigan in 2019. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the show notes for full details and any links we've mentioned in the episode.